Well, good morning, NBC. It is good to be with you today. My name is Bob Erbig. If I have not met you, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you are new with us, we are in a sermon series on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes called Meeting in the Madness, which you can see uh, elevated here behind me. Now, why do we call it that? Uh, because the world feels a little bit out of control right now. It feels mad. Ecclesiastes is an amazing book because it asks and answers life's important questions, topics that we all wrestle with, meaning and purpose and time. Last week, we talked about the relevant issue of work. Dave did a great job of of pulling that out. Now, why do most of us work a career or a, a, a day job, whatever it is? Why do we do that? To make money, right? And that's the topic we're going to examine today, which is intimately connected with last week's discussion. Now, Speaking of money and madness, has anybody been paying attention to the stock market over the last few years? Yeah, the graph, it looks a little bit like a polygraph test. Uh, It's up, it's down, it's all over the place. Uh, Perhaps if you, uh, it made your heart flutter a few times, just like the graph, right? It's madness. Anxiety levels are through the roof. Now, I want to start with a question this morning as it relates to, to money. And I just want to ask you, how much money is enough? How much money is enough. How much money would you need to have in your bank account, your investment account, your piggy bank account if you're a little bit younger? How much money would you need to have in there to feel safe and secure and satisfied? Well, that's the question that was posed to billionaire John D. Rockefeller. Yes, the guy that Rockefeller Center was named after in Manhattan. If you don't know about him, he was a brilliant and often ruthless businessman in the early 1900s. He became extremely wealthy because he monopolized the oil industry, which I don't know what they'd say about him today, but that's what he did back in the day. Now, when I say extremely wealthy, I mean he was like probably the wealthiest person in American history. So Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk today, they're worth like 150, 200 billion with a B dollars. In today's dollars, Rockefeller would be worth about double that amount. That's how much he was worth. I think at one point the U.S. government asked him to bail them out. That's how wealthy he was. So a reporter comes up to John D. Rockefeller uh, one time with all his wealth. He asks him him that question, how much is enough? How much money is enough, John? And Rockefeller's response shines a light on our heart and our soul. How did he respond? This is what he said. He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. We always think we need just a little bit more. When you wake up in the morning, do you ever think that? Man, if I just had a little bit more, I could X, Y, and Z. We always think that we need the next thing. It's not just related to money, right? So think about this. Like maybe you're single here today, you're not married, and, you know, I want to get married, right? So you got to find a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and you got to get married. You don't have kids, right? Get going and buy a bigger house. You only have a bachelor's degree? You better get that master's or that doctorate. We always think we need just a little bit more. Don't believe me? Take a moment to complete this sentence. If I only had, then I would be happy. Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that sentence in your mind? Because I suspect many of us have put money in that blank. If I only had more money, then I would be happy and all my problems would be solved. Why? Because money reveals our desires. It's a window into our soul. Now, do you know who knew this? Jesus. Did you know that Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven? 
Do you know that Jesus talked about money more than he talked about hell? In fact, 39 of the parables in the Gospels, 11 of them are about money. That's more than 25%. So how does Jesus capture our relationship with money in Matthew 6, in his famous Sermon on the Mount? He says, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, money is a reality in life. Money provides security in our minds and our hearts. Money is a vehicle to what we actually want. And listen, listen, I get it. I get it. There are times I'm having a conversation with myself, and I'm filling in that blank with with money. In his great book, Sex and Money, two topics Solomon has covered, author Paul David Tripp unpacks this concept, and he just simply says, money matters. There's just no getting around it. It's not, and it's not unspiritual to think about it, right? Let's, let's get over that. To be concerned about it or to talk about it often. It's in a very significant way, your life will be shaped by what you think about money and in a way that is inescapable, somehow, some way, your heart will struggle with money. Because money touches everything in our lives. That's why we hate to talk about it. Because it starts to reveal other things about us. Now, does anybody out there feel this? Right now, some of you might be afraid that you're going to lose your job and you are wondering, how are you going to afford life? Others of you are looking at the price of college or the price of homes, madness, by the way, (laughs) both of them, and you're losing sleep over how you're going to be able to fund your child's education or get ahead. Others of us listened to the message last week that Pastor Dave uh, gave on work and you're saying, I'm ready to retire. But then you look at your 401k account and you say, I don't have enough what? Money. Paul Tripp is right. We talk about it every day because how we view money affects how we live. And we always think we need just a little bit more. Do you feel that? We all feel it. And you know how I know that? We're Americans, right? There was a recent article in The Atlantic that exposed us. The headline, Americans worry about money far too much. Now, what was the sentiment? Again, if we only had more money, our problems would be solved. And so author and researcher Arthur Brooks says this. He says, money is one of the things Americans worry about most in the world. And so he cites a few surveys. He says, one survey found that even when the U.S. economy is thriving, more than half of Americans feel anxious or insecure about money, sometimes, often, or all the time. So that means all of us are thinking about money. And then during the COVID pandemic, another survey found that workers were almost five times more likely to worry about money than their health, despite what you may have heard. Now, here's the convicting part. He says, you don't really need to worry about money because only about 11% of Americans live in poverty. And yet, according to another survey, more recent, he says more than half of millennials with a net worth greater than a million dollars. Now, I just got to say... I'm about as old as you can possibly be, and still, based on who does the metrics, considered a millennial. So this is people younger than me, in their 30s, 20s, 30s, whatever. They, were, they fear losing their wealth a great deal or somewhat, as did about a third of similarly wealthy baby boomers. And so Brooks concludes, how he concludes the article, he says, For millions of people then, worrying about money is not a reflection of whether their basic needs are being met. In fact... This anxiety reflects deeper concerns that money can't solve. 
I'm going to say that sentence one more time. This anxiety reflects deeper concerns that money can't solve. It's like this author is channeling King Solomon from Ecclesiastes. And so we live with this tension every day. Money is both a danger and it's a blessing. Right? So money is a danger. It can quickly capture our hearts and make us think we don't need God because we have enough. Or it can become a consuming part of our lives where we think we need more and more and more and more. Or we get a little bit more money and we think, now I'm going to be safe and secure and satisfied. I suspect many of us think that. But it's dangerous, and Solomon's going to tell us that, because the pursuit of wealth can quickly become a god. But now there's a flip side to the equation, because money is also a blessing. That's the tension. And some people listening today, you have the ability to make a lot of money. Right? God has blessed you with that gift. Amen. Right. And because of that money, you are able to do things like own a home or buy a car or send your kids to school or start a business. Because of that money, you have the opportunity to generously bless others. As Paul Tripp said, money matters, but how you think about money will change the way you live. And that's what Solomon's going to talk with us about today in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10 to chapter 6, verse 7. Like John Rockefeller, we always think we need a little bit more, and so we need this passage today. Now, let me offer a few caveats as we begin. First, I am not a financial planner. In fact, some, it's somewhat intimidating to talk to uh, a bunch of finance people about money, uh, but <laughs> there is a spiritual dimension to money, and that's what Solomon brings up, and that's what I want to look at today. Second, whether you have $5 million or more, whether you have $30,000 or less, what Solomon is going to say today applies to us all. And so I have three movements I want to, uh, today, and I want to attempt to answer, simply answer the question, what is money? What is money? And first, we're going to look at two negative aspects of money, and then second, uh, or finally, I should say, one positive trait of money that will change our thinking on the topic. Now, normally, I give you the outline, but today, I'm just going to, I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to give you one point at a time. Right? I, I want you to take the ride with me today. So buckle up. Let's pray, and then let's, let's dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for my friends who are here today. Thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love, Lord. Um, Father, speak to our hearts today. Expose what's there, and help us to be more dependent and reliant on you, Holy Spirit. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So money. It's an interesting topic, right? Intuitively, as we've already said, we think we need just a little bit more, but the question is, why do we think that? Because some cultural belief has gotten into, it's gotten lodged in our hearts to make us accept that premise. So Solomon says, it's dangerous to believe that, and we're going to look at why. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. <clears throat> whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless, right? He's got that refrain. And there you go. That's it. We can go home now, Okay. Now, remember, this is old man Solomon speaking to us right here, right? He's lived his life. He's built his wealth. He doesn't need Social Security because his 401K, his net worth, they're, they're, they're pretty good. But he says, I'm still not satisfied because trying to find meaning in your money, in your wealth, is what? He says it's meaningless, and that's that word we keep seeing coming up. That's the, the Hebrew word hevel, right? It's mere breath. It's, your wealth is here, and then it's gone. So first, what we have to see is that money is a mirage in the desert. Money is a mirage in the desert. It promises fulfillment, but it always leaves you wanting more. Now, again, what is a mirage? 
that, that's, that's, think about the image for just a second, right? Most often that word is associated with an optical illusion. So it creates this illusion of, of water. Now imagine you're in the middle of the Sahara Desert, the Mojave Desert, whatever desert you want to be in the middle of. Um, by the way, I was talking with somebody in between the service about a trip I did through Nevada, uh, northern Nevada, and I got to tell you, if my car broke down, I'd be in trouble. <laughs> you're in the middle of a desert, your car broke down, your camel broke down, depending on where you are, and you've been walking for miles, you're dehydrated, you're more thirsty than you've ever been in your life. In fact, you're feeling like you're going to die because you're so thirsty. And then in the distance, you see this image, and it looks like there's some water, and then you start running, you start running, you start running, you're out of breath, but you keep going, because what? There's water in the distance, you're almost there, and then you get there, and you realize it's not there at all. You fall down in the sand, even thirstier than you were before you ran to this mirage. And what Solomon says is that when you love money, it's like that. How much money do you need? Just a little bit more, right? And it starts to capture your heart and reorient your life. If, if, if you look at the Newer Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme and he writes a letter to his protege, Timothy. And what does he, he famously say? 1 Timothy 6, for the, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now notice, if this has never been pointed out to you, I don't assume that it has, it does not say that money is evil. Money just is. It's a part of life. He says the love of money is the cause of all these problems. And the Greek word philargaria specifically refers to a love of money or avarice. And he's saying the people in this context right here, this New Testament church, have a deep fondness for and intimacy with, that's what he's saying, an idolization of money and wealth. That's the danger of money. And, and the result was that people even left the faith and caused themselves a lot of grief. Why? Because how we relate to money changes the way we live. If our ultimate love is money, or, or more specifically, the material things that money can bring us instead of God, relationships will change. Now, if you're younger in this audience today, you might say, this doesn't apply to me. Well, imagine if your parents didn't have money. Money affects us all, right? Philosopher James K.A. Smith says this in his wonderful book, At You Are What You Love. He says, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what, what you will love as ultimate. And you are what you love. Now, what does the love of money do to us? And here I think about a lot of the very famous people in Hollywood. Maybe some of them grew up in Christian homes. And when they became rich and famous, every, people will test. Everything changed. Their loves were reoriented. I'm thinking about people like Katy Perry and others like that, you know? Now, if you're not careful, wealth can change you because, again, it reorients your heart. It changes what you love. Now, here's a more down-to-earth example. If you say, well, I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in Hollywood. Okay, I get it. How many of you have ordered packages from Amazon? All right. Thank you for the honesty. The rest of you are liars, okay? <laughs> It's just bottom line. Okay, now how many of you, now the second question, how many of you have compulsively ordered packages from Amazon? Yes. All right, one person in the first service is honest about that. <clears throat> now, you need money. You need a certain amount of wealth in order to order from Amazon. And when you get that package, has you ever, have you ever gotten a dopamine high? 
You say, yes, my package came. Somebody was thinking about me. Oh, wait, it was me. Yes. <laughs> Let me get another one. Now, who gets depressed if you don't get a package from Amazon? Don't answer that. There is a spiritual dimension to money. What we pursue, what we buy, how much we buy is a window into our soul. And that's the same thing Solomon and Paul are talking about. Money is a vehicle to get our heart's desires. But more money, he says, will leave you empty and wanting more because you haven't addressed the root issue, as Arthur Brooks observed. What's worse, money can cause more problems. Like what? Well, look at, look at verse 11. He says, <laughs> he says, the more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? Now, do you find that to be true? Anybody out there have kids? And they love to help you spend your money, right? I love the way the NLT puts it here. Look at that word picture. What good is wealth except to watch it just slip through your fingers. You can't ever quite grasp it. Now, here's the reality. I make more money than I did 10, 15 years ago. You do probably, or maybe you've been through different you know, income strata through the course of your life. No matter what you make, at the end of the month, I'm always asking myself, where did the money go? Right? I, inflation, yes, I know. Okay. but <laughs> And yes, we do have a budget. But my point is, the more we get, the, we always find a way to spend it, even if you have a budget. And here's what's worse. Solomon tells us that we're surrounded by thieves. And you know why that is? It's not just us that thinks money will provide meaning and happiness and solve our problems. It's everybody else around us that thinks that too. So as soon as they find out how much money you have, they start treating you differently. Money is a mirage. Whether you have money or you're trying to get it, we're all thirsty people looking for a drink. And I think that is what Solomon is trying to show us here. And not just that. Look at verse 12. He says, people who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. Has anybody ever lost a night's sleep over money? I'm sure nobody's been up at night wondering how you're going to pay a bill or how you're going to close that deal or whatever it is. Again, I think the NLT gets the point across here, but it does obscure something about food. You see, what Solomon is saying is that the average hardworking person, they're, they're satisfied with what they have. It's, it's the rich, he says here, the wealthy, that don't sleep for two reasons. This, this is the example he gives. They eat too much food. That they're going out to opulent dinners every single night. Now, other versions capture that. They're, it shows that decadence can produce indigestion. That's, that's what he's getting at here. Now, secondly, they don't sleep well because, again, they always want just a little bit more, or, or you've gotten yourself into a large amount of debt to get wealthy. When money is ultimate, it's a mirage that leaves us thirsty and dehydrated in the desert. Now, before we leave this point, uh, let's stick with the food illustration for just a second, because this passage is what's called a chiastic structure. In other words, there's parallel themes in the passage leading to the central main point. So the first half of the, of the, uh, of the, of the section uh, parallels with the last part of the section, and it's leading you down to the central point. That's a chiasm. Solomon picks up this food image of the second half in chapter 6, verse 7 to 9. If you skip down there, he, he drives home this food image. He says, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? 
Better what the eye sees than the what? The roving of the appetites. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now that's a pretty striking description. Notice his train of thought here, right? Everybody's toil, which is code for their work, is for their mouth, right? You got to eat, got to feed other people. In other words, we all have material desires we want to fulfill. And he says, you're never satisfied. Secondly, this, uh, he says, this is a vice for everyone, no matter where you fall on the tax bracket. And then third, he gives this image of a, a roving appetite, or the ESV says a wandering appetite. Now, what, is, what does he mean by that? Again, this concept that we all want just a little bit more. Now, again, think about food, okay? What was the slogan, or is the slogan, for Lay's potato chips? This advertising campaign's been going on for a while. Remember this guy? What's, what's the slogan? Bet you can't eat just one, right? You always want just a little bit more. And, and, and when you're eating potato chips all the time, you get just a little bit more, and then what? You're still hungry, now, Pastor Dave over here has been talking a lot about Reese's Peanut Butter Cups in recent weeks. In fact, I've been told that people were texting him. Pe- people are bringing him Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, <laughs> trying to pay him off. In fact, Dave, I, I didn't get Reese's, but I-, I had some Kit Kats in my office. Will you accept those? <laughs> Leave you less satisfied, okay? Actually, these are my favorites, so I'll keep the rest. The, the ice cream version would have melted, so I didn't get that for you. Now, here's what I want to point out. My appetite, if my appetite wandered in such a way that all I ate was Lay's potato chips, Reese's peanut butter cups, Big Macs, what would happen? I'd feel stuffed. You might have a heart attack. Thank you. That's right. (laughs) You'd feel stuffed or diabetes. I'd probably be bloated. I'd, I'd be really uncomfortable and worse, and worse, I would have eaten all this food and I still wouldn't be satisfied. The moral of the story, stop pretending like you're in middle school along with the Mountain Dew, okay? Now, by contrast, when you eat the right things, you got fruits and your vegetables and your lean meats, perhaps, or whatever, what happens? Your body is fueled by the nutrients that it actually needs. You have more energy, you don't feel bloated, and you're not in a constant state of hunger. And this is what Solomon's teaching here. We all have wandering appetites, but we have to train ourselves to feast on Christ, not on the lesser gods of this world. A love of money can facilitate, it can enable unhealthy desires that are meaningless. Now, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy Reese's every once in a while, but focus your appetite on the right things, 90%, right? So I'd invite you to ask yourself this question this week. Where does my appetite take me? Are you satisfied or do you need just a little bit more? This week, every day when you wake up, And as you're doing maybe your devotional time with the Lord, ask God to reveal your wandering appetite and ask him to reorient that appetite for him and him alone. Ask him to help you see that money, it's a mirage. Because when we don't recognize that, it gets to point number two. Money is also a wedge between you and joy. It can be a wedge between you and joy. Because when money is ultimate, when our meaning is found in money and the things we own, a giant wedge is shoved in our hearts and separates us from the joy that God wants us to have. That's the spiritual dimension of money. Now, do you remember a few weeks ago we talked about the happiness quest in in Ecclesiastes 2? That same principle applies right here. All of us want to have this joy-filled life, but we seek that fulfillment in the wrong places. And money, the very thing we think is going to help us find joy, actually can push us further away from it. It's like, it's like a wedge. 
Now, in the next few verses, Solomon is going to show us four dangers of money, four ways money can steal our joy. Look at where he starts in verse 13. What does he say? He says, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Now, read that verse again, because you might not have caught it the first time. What does it say? It's not saying what you expect. At first glance, you might look at that and say, yeah, wealthy people, they hoard money, they hurt others. But what does it actually say? It says, when wealth is hoarded, who is harmed? The people with the money. Why? Well, I'm going to call this danger the sting of stinginess. The people who hoard wealth for themselves miss out on the opportunity to bless others and be generous. And what's behind the hoarding of the wealth? Right? Ultimately, it's a selfish pursuit. It's often driven by a desire for either one, security, because we think if we have more money, we're going to be safe from harm, or number two, by importance. More money means we are, we are better and more successful than everybody else around us. And this thinking cuts against what Solomon taught us in chapter four. Dave mentioned this last week. Relationships promote flourishing. Two are better than one, right? A threefold cord is not easily broken. So people who are stingy often destroy relationships with their family through workaholism. Again, Dave unpacked that last week. They're linked because why do we work so hard? Again, we think we need just a little bit more. And that pursuit of wealth can cut off relationships and can lead to loneliness and sometimes poor health. That money you think will bring you joy is actually that wedge between you and joy. So take stock of your stinginess. Now, he continues in verse 14. Solomon says, Or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. And here Solomon reminds us that all money, all the money we work so hard to get, there's always a possibility that it can be lost through some unforeseen circumstance. The stock market tanks. Your home is destroyed in a terrible earthquake. Your business fails. Has anybody been following that awful earthquake in Turkey this week? Yeah, this past Monday, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake hits, followed by all these aftershocks, and I read that like 5,700 buildings just destroyed, thousands are dead, tens of thousands injured, maybe for the rest of their lives. And it reminds us that life and possessions, they're all fleeting. You never know what's going to happen. These possible misfortunes lead to the second danger money can produce, and that is radical insecurity. And I say this because if your identity, if your meaning and your purpose and your safety and your security are all completely wrapped up and indistinguishable from how much money you have, you will be radically insecure. Why? Because Solomon told us it is hevel. It's here, it's gone. So as soon as you hear about a recession coming, or maybe we're in a recession, I don't know, you might get unbearably depressed. The second half of the verse tells us that this person is concerned about their legacy. They want to have money to leave to their children. But if you read statistics, oftentimes it says that about 60% of a family's wealth is wasted by the end of the second generation, and about 90% by the end of the third. And I talk with business leaders who say it's true in business too. If you leave your children the business or money by the third generation, they squander it because, and they take it for granted because they didn't earn it. Look at Prince Harry from a few weeks ago. So all that insecurity you had over money, it was for nothing, he says. Which is a sobering thought in Solomon's next point, verse 15. He says, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and, everyone, and as everyone comes, so they depart. 
They take nothing from their toil that can, they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? Now, there was a famous uh, play I read in middle school. I may have mentioned this before. It sums up what Solomon is warning about in these two verses. And it's just simply this. You can't take it with you. Kaufman play. You can't take it with you. Everyone comes, everyone departs. You take nothing from your work. What do you gain? You gain nothing. That's what he says. And yet, Arthur Brooks told us, this guy, not a Christian, tells us at the beginning that Americans, our greatest worry is money. We need just a little bit more. And if we're honest, even Christians. Now, at this point, you might be pushing back in your head and you say, Pastor Bob, mm, money is important. Right? We, we need to work hard. We need to be good stewards. And I will give a hearty agreement. Yes, yes. But if that's your objection, you have missed the point Solomon has been trying to make. In fact, the point he's been making throughout the entire book to this point, he says you can choose to live life for God or you can live life without God. But how you treat God is going to affect your relationship with your wealth. If you think that God owns everything and that he is the Lord of your life, you're going to become more generous. But if you think that all that money you worked hard for is yours, you're going to say, God, stay out of my business. It's mine. What kind of person do you want to be? Because people who have made money their God, Solomon tells us what happens to them. Look at verse 17. He says, all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Now, I don't care how much money you have and what your perception of your wealth is. What Solomon is saying is that if you desire money or wealth, and, and, and if it rules your life, if it is a stranglehold on your heart, he says you're going to be a miserable person. Money is a great tool. It is a lousy God. It will take you to a place of darkness and frustrations and anger. You ever met somebody who's just angry over money? Because if money is your God, you're never going to have enough, right? Rockefeller knew this. And in the end, what do you want to be known for? Because we're all going to die. That's another theme in Ecclesiastes. At our final party... At our funeral, what do you want people to say about you? That he or she was a, was a hard worker, but they lived a miserable life. Is that what you want? Because if you're somebody who's allowed money to drive that wedge between you and, and joy, Solomon paints a striking picture in, in chapter 6. Again, the other half of the chiasm. Verse 3, he says, A man may have a hundred children and live many years, Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a, a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. And yes, you read those words right. He says you can live a long life, you can have a bunch of children and grandchildren, but if you never stop to enjoy them, to enjoy the wealth you were blessed with, if you never build any deep, lasting relationships with those you claim to love, nobody's going to care when you die. You'll, you'll depart in darkness. Your name will be quickly forgotten. In fact, a child who dies at birth is better off than you. What a shocking image. But it's on purpose. So let me drive this home before we, we get to the third point that has a lot more hope. Close your eyes. Close your eyes right now. I want you to picture your funeral. Now you've died. You've passed on. And just picture, who's going to be there? 
What are they going to say? What are they going to say? Because if money and pursuit of material possessions are shading your legacy, there's still t- it's not too late to change. So open your eyes. I perhaps painted John Rockefeller in a negative light during this message, but did you know that he was a Christian? And throughout his life, he always gave 10% of his earnings to the church, and the more he made, the more he gave. He gave generously to fund education. He helped fund several universities. He funded organizations that, through medical research, eliminated diseases like yellow fever. And when he died, he left the vast majority of his wealth to charity. And so for whatever faults he had, Rockefeller understood at some level, and I think we all understand this, that generosity is the key to the good life. So what is money? It's a mirage in the desert. It can become a wedge to the joy you desire. But before we finish today, I want to I tell you one last point, Solomon's main point, that I think is going to change everything. That funeral scene that we just saw in chapter 6, it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, it should not be that way. Solomon has been drawing these sharp contrasts because he's leading us right to the center of this chiasm. He's leading us to the antidote for these unfulfilled desires. Right in the center, in the bullseye, is Ecclesiastes 5, 18 to 20. And there we learn that money is a gift from God. Money is a gift from God. Everything you have is because God allowed you to have it. He's blessed you with it. Because it's, but it's his money. It's not yours. And if you understand that, if you get that paradigm shift, it will change your life. I know it's changed mine. So look at what Solomon says in verse 18. He says, this is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Now look at the verse, right? What what do you notice? First, he's making an observation about what is good. And second, he's telling you it's okay to enjoy life. Right, you work, you make money, enjoy it. But always remember who's given it to you. God gave it to you. And then he keeps going. Verse 19, he says, Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. Whoa! Now notice, money's not evil. Don't misquote the Bible. Love of money, obsession with money, worship of money and possessions... That leads to destruction. But if God has blessed you, he says, enjoy it. Humbly recognize it's a gift from your creator. Put money in its proper place. It's a tool. It's a blessing. It's not a God. And then Solomon concludes with a deep and profound point in verse 20. He says, they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with what? With gladness of heart. And this is the central verse of the passage. This is where he's been leading us, and this, this point is what he's been contrasting. What do we already learn, right? We learn that chasing after money leaves you empty and anxious and exhausted and mean-spirited. He says, when money is your God, it can destroy your relationships and cause you to be alone at the end of your life. Money can steal your joy and rob you of the opportunity to bless others. That's been the whole part of this message. But, he says, but, but, but. But if you recognize that money is a gift from your creator and you use money as a blessing, you're not going to look back and reflect on your life with regrets. 
you will have gladness of heart. You will enjoy what God gives you every day. Why? Because your joy, your peace, your hope is in God, the one who gives joy. Now, at this point in the message, some of you are asking, well, okay, how do I get that? I've been living so completely opposite of that. I, I, I resonate with those first two points. How do I get this joy? What's keeping me from receiving money as a gift from God? Well, briefly before we finish, I want to answer that question with one word and a few principles. How do you get this joy? In a word, contentment. Contentment. Find contentment in God. And you say, that's it? I say, yeah, that's it. But the problem is we live in a world that is not content. Everywhere you look, everywhere you go, you're bombarded with messages, with, with alluring images trying to make you discontent. Like what? Like advertisements, right? And marketing people know this. Every ad you see is trying to make you discontent with what you have. Your phone is old, get a new one. You can't sleep, get a new pillow. Your car broke down, get a new one. Had another kid, get a bigger house, right? Cable news makes its money trying to make you discontent, right? We live in a discontented world, and all those things I mentioned, most of them cost money. How about relationships? Is that friend not meeting your needs and making you angry? Delete, cancel, block. Never have to talk to him again. Is your spouse not meeting your needs or catering to your every desire? Forget about working on that relationship. Divorce is pretty easy today. We live in a discontented world. But what if, as Solomon told us, we find contentment in God? And you know what? That's exactly what Paul was telling Timothy in, in chapter 6 of his letter. You know that passage where he warns about the love of money? If you go up a few verses, what does he say? He starts this way. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's what he says. Godliness with what? Contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We're going to take nothing out of it. But friends... <laughs> What we have to do is learn to be content with what we have. Money will not rule our lives. In fact, in fact, I think the more, if we look for more ways to give our money away and bless others, I think the more content we're going to be. Because when we're content, our hearts are glad in God. That's what Solomon said. So here's the next question. If contentment will bring you joy, now you say, well, how do I get contentment? Well, let me suggest a few, a few brief principles here. Number one, recognize that God is sovereign. And what I mean by that is this, you have to trust that God is in control. And I'm going to tell you right now, I worry about money the most when I stop believing that God is in control. He knows my needs. In his providence, he will take care of us. Maybe not the way we want, but that's when we have to be on our knees seeking his face. And that's ultimately what he wants, us to seek him and to trust him. Second, when you do that, you can relinquish control. And again, I can only speak for myself, but so much of my anxiety about money is because I want to be in control. I want to be prepared. And yes, yes, we need to be responsible. Don't go home today and say, Pastor Bob said you should be irresponsible with your money. You tell them, Pastor Bob said, you, need to, you, 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 you don't find your ultimate 
fulfillment in money, your ultimate meaning in money. Don't let money be your God. That's what, that's what Solomon's saying here. But when you get a certain amount of money, this is what happens. We stop asking God for help, and we start negotiating with him. I say, God, mm, oh, man, God, I've been, I've been praying. Oh, I just really don't want to do. I, I don't want to do that thing you're calling me to do, God. Oh, it's too much. Oh. How about we compromise? It's what we do because we want to be in control. We want to be prepared. But there's some things you can't prepare for. Now, finally, when you know that God's sovereign, when you relinquish control, it's then that you can start to give bigger. And the bottom line is just this. The greatest remedy for greed is generosity. And whether you're a Christian or not, I think you know this deep in your heart. If you don't want to be controlled by money, give it away. Invest in the economics of the kingdom if you're a believer right? Give bigger. You know, when people in the church talk about giving financially, often we talk about 10% of your income. And listen, we can argue about if that's the right number or if it's a mandate of obedience or if it's a suggestion. I'm just going to say, I think it's a pretty good barometer. Because if you want to build your faith and you want to build your trust in God, and if you want to relinquish control, giving away at least 10% of your income is a good exercise. You know why? It reminds us whose money it is. And it deepens your intimacy with your creator as you learn to trust him more. So give bigger. Be content with what you have. Many of us, we might be able to give more than that. In fact, God might be calling us to give more than that. Maybe God is calling you right now to give bigger, to help your neighbors, to fuel kingdom expansion. Because ultimately, as you give more, you will recognize that your meaning and your purpose, it's not in money. It's only found in Jesus Christ. And if you want to live, and I've got to tell you, I want you, I want, I want to, I want you to live and give like Jesus. How do you do that? Well, let me give you one final image. I think you've got to get an upside-down portfolio. All you finance people are getting upset at me right now. What are you talking about, Pastor Bob? What do I mean by that? Well, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul tells us about the life of Jesus. Tells us about the grace and the mercy we've received through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. He says, his blood purchased you, don't you remember? And then he tells us what Jesus did to accomplish that. He says, he left his what? His place in heaven, his throne in heaven. He left that, he came to earth and became a human being. He lived a sinless life, and then he was betrayed by his friends. He was beaten he was whipped. The flesh was ripped off of his back. There was a crown that was shoved in his head and, and bloods poured down his face. Nails driven into his wrists. A spear was plunged in his side. And then he suffocated to death on a cross naked for all the world to see and mock him. Why did he do that? And what did he accomplish? Paul says, for you know you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Though he was rich, he turned his portfolio upside down so you and I could experience the riches of his mercy every day. So joy and gladness could reign in our hearts and our minds so that we can hope in the resurrection power that his sacrifice produced. And one day, one day, 
He's going to come back and transform it all because he owns it all. So don't let money rule your heart. Let King Jesus rule your heart. And when he does, he's going to lead a revolution of generous people who build an upside-down kingdom with an upside-down portfolio and show the world something better for the glory of God and the sake of the gospel. Amen? Let me ask the worship team to come on stage. They've got one last song for us to sing. And as they come, I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, we confess that a topic like this is not an easy one to discuss because it affects every area of our life. Money. It touches. Its tentacles are in everything, Lord God. Our desires, our relationships, our, our hopes, our dreams, Lord. Father, today I ask that you would help us to, to find our hope and our dream and our desire and our satisfaction in you in you. And I don't know how long, how, how long we've been Christians, Lord. I've been Christians for many years. It's so hard to get this because our hearts think that what this world has to offer will satisfy us, Lord. Teach us to find our desire in you and to worship you and to love you above all else. Help us, Lord. Help our faith transform us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.